Well, thank you for allowing us to come and be with you today. We trust that uh, as we gather together for worship, the Lord will bless us. We um, just sang from Psalm 59 that each day the psalmist sings of God's steadfast love. And that's an important discipline for us to remind ourselves. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 26 that your loving kindness is before my eyes. And again, I think that's a discipline that we need to keep in mind about God's loving kindness, keeping that in the forefront of our thinking and our consciousness to be the thing that we look at. And we're going to be uh, reading from Hosea chapter 11 this morning. Uh, Hosea 11 is an interesting book. There's several people that have told us their experiences over the years about the book of Hosea. I won't take time to tell all of them to you, but uh, Catherine and I had a friend in college who, it was through reading and meditating and studying on the book of Hosea that she came to be convinced that God loved her. If you would have talked to her before reading the book of Hosea, she would have probably acknowledged that God loved his people, but struggled with the fact that All right. Okay. Technology is a wonderful thing when it, it, it works right, isn't it? Uh, as I was saying, she would um, have told you that she believed that God uh, loved his people, but was not sure that God loved her until she read the book of Hosea. And so I don't know if chapter 11 of the book of Hosea had a picture of helping her come to that realization or not. But certainly the commentators and I agree that this is one of the most beautiful, remarkable, detailed pictures that we have of God's love in all of scripture. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, please join me as I read the first seven verses of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me, the sword will rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Probably in the late 1970s, uh, a man that was known as one of the evangelical leaders of Christianity in our country was speaking at one of our more well-known institutions. Uh, I won't tell you his name, uh, but if I would have mentioned his name, most of you would have recognized the name or at least recognized the uh, his involvement in our country's spiritual well-being for 
and the 19s, really it started in the 1950s all the way through the 1980s, 1990s. But as he was speaking, he basically said something that I disagree with, but something that also greatly intrigues me. He basically said this, that if we knew how to share the gospel properly, nobody in the world would ever refuse to receive Jesus. Now, what I disagree with that, of course, is that it, in essence, goes against one of the cardinal doctrines of which we believe, that God draws his people, that God sees people as being dead. And it's not that they just need some medicine to be made well, they need a resurrection. So the, what we call the principles of grace are basically not mentioned, not even understood in that statement. So I disagree with that part of it. But what did intrigue me was the fact that if we truly understand the gospel and what it means, how is it possible that someone would reject the beauty of the gospel? Well, now, of course, we know the answer is because God is the one that brings that resurrection into our life. He's the one that brings new life to us. He sees us in our desperation, in our struggles, and he brings new life to us. But if you think about the beauty of the gospel, what a treasure of God's love. I've defined the gospel as that God, in an act of mercy and love, sent his son Jesus so that through him, through his life, death, and resurrection, we might be rescued, restored, reign, that, that Jesus would reign over us as our beloved, beloved king, and we'd be, we would be returned to that eternal and full life we were meant to enjoy. So think of those blessings. He rescues us from the life of misery, the life of death, the life of sin. He restores us to that close relationship that he wants with his people. Jesus reigns over us as our, beloved, as our benevolent king. And he returns us to that full and eternal life that God created us to enjoy. So in a sense, if we truly understood the gospel, it's a remarkable thing. And in a sense, it's hard for us to understand how anybody could turn this down. But again, we understand the sovereignty of God. But what we have here in Hosea chapter 11 is really in the first four verses a, a picture of the faithfulness of God. And then in verse 5 to 7, really a picture of the fickleness of people. So we see the tenderness of God's love and yet the treachery of people's devotion to God. So I want to pursue with you for a few moments this this morning, the idea that a misguided people turn away from the beauty and blessing of walking with God. A misguided people turn away from the beauty and the blessing of walking with God. So again, we see this contrast. In verse 1 to 4, we see the fact that the tenderness of God's love, and then verses 5 to 7, we see the treachery of people's devotion. So the first thing I want to share with you this morning is that we, that God deals in tenderness with his people. God deals in tenderness with his people. A verse that you could probably put over the book of Hosea is uh, Romans chapter 10, where God says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. And you see that reflected in these verses. 
You see the tenderness of God's love, but you see the treachery of God's people. Now, you probably know the book of Hosea. The first three chapters are what is most uh, well-known about the book. It's the story of uh, Hosea, and he's told to go and marry a prostitute, and her name is Gomer, and to have children by them. And so God uses this picture of of Hosea's faithfulness, his reaching out to Gomer in her waywardness and loving her and drawing her to himself. So they marry and then Gomer apparently returns back to her life of prostitution and and, and Gomer has to go and redeem her. And so God uses, he really acts out this picture of his love for his people through this picture of Hosea with Gomer. God, as he says in Romans chapter 10, reaching out all day long to an obstinate and disobedient people. Now, in these first first four verses of Hosea, we have uh, two primary pictures of God's love. The first one that we have here is that God deals with us as a tender father. That God's demonstrates his tenderness towards us as a gracious father. And if you have your Bibles open, just please follow along here. We we have, it starts out, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Israel, I called my son. So let me give you four pictures that we have of this overall idea that God shows his tenderness as a gracious father. Now, I do recognize that any time that we talk about things like this, that there are probably some of you, perhaps, that cannot picture a father being gracious, because that just was not your experience. Let me tell you, I understand that. I empathize with that. But I also have to remind you that if you do find yourself in that situation, that you have to recognize that God, when he presents himself as a tender, loving father to us, is not talking about somebody like your father, if indeed you came from that kind of a difficult situation. So I want to encourage you as we think of God being a tender father, a gracious father, to put your faith in what the Bible says. And if necessary, set aside your own experiences of a difficult childhood. But the first picture that we see here of God's tenderness, of God's tenderness as a a gracious father is that he called the people. You see that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now you know, of course, that this verse is used to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ as uh, God calling Mary and Joseph and and the child Jesus out of Egypt. But it's taught telling us here that God called his people out of Egypt. You remember that your Old Testament history that the people of Israel went down to Egypt as a large family. In Egypt they became a nation. And God now calls them. It's a picture of his love that he calls us. In Jeremiah chapter um, 31 verse 3 it says I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you in loving kindness. And one of the cardinal doctrines of our faith, as those of us that are in the Reformed tradition, is that we believe that God calls us out of a life of sin and death and misery. He calls us to himself. 
Jesus said that no one could come to me unless the Father himself draws us. That, that word for draw is the, the idea of taking a bucket of water, dropping it into a well, and, and pulling the water up. So the first picture of God's love for you is if, if, if you have come to faith in Jesus, is that you have to recognize that God was the one that did that work. He drew you out of your life of sin and enslavement to Satan and enticement with the world and brought you into fellowship with himself. The second picture that we see out of, uh, of God being a tender father is that he taught the people. But notice in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. It's probably a picture of the people of God being called by the prophets, being called by the prophets to faithfulness to God. And the more the prophets called, the more they kept turning aside to idols. Again, it's a picture of the fickleness of God's people, which we'll pick up here in just a moment with uh, verse 5. But the next picture of his love is that, you know, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. So the picture is that not only did God call us in verse 1, but he also teaches us in verse 2. A tender picture, isn't it? of a father teaching his children to walk. Now, my children are too old, or maybe probably I'm too old, to remember my children learning to walk, but one of the privileges you have of getting older, for many people at least, is that you can teach your grandchildren to walk, right? And so here's the scenario. You take your grandchild, your grandson or your granddaughter, and you steady them on their feet. By this time, they learn to stand, right? And in our case, my wife would sit a few steps a few feet away from our, I'm thinking of our grandson, and she would call out to our grandson, said, come to me, come to me. And of course, our grandson would just fall on his knees and, you know, start to crawl to her, and I'd pick him back up, and I'd stand him there, and he'd smile, Catherine was smiling, and, and eventually he would took those little steps. And then when he made it into Catherine's arms, we would both rejoice. We would celebrate. We'd give him a big hug and shake him, and the simple thing like learning to walk, God tenderly deals with us as a gracious father. He teaches us to walk. So think of the principles in that idea of teaching people to walk. You support them. That's what God does for you. Jeremiah, excuse me, Deuteronomy 33, underneath are the everlasting arms. God is there to support you. He picks you up when you fall. And that's what Jesus does, right? He doesn't look at us when we struggle with worldliness or temptation or sin to say, oh, I'm giving up on you. Jesus picks us up. And then he encourages us. And lastly, he celebrates over you. Have you thought recently about God celebrating over your life? If you've never thought about that, read Zephaniah chapter 3. He talks about that. He quiets us in his love and he sings over us. He rejoices. He celebrates over you. So God calls us. He teaches us. The next one that you see here is that he cared for them. Uh, again, in verse 3, I took them up by their arms. He took us up by our arms. He cares for us. Again, think of a, a child in a, the arms of his parents, 
that gentle, gentle tenderness, that care. And that's what God is saying to you. In Isaiah chapter 40, he tells us that he gently leads the nursing ewes. He picks them up in their arms and carries them on his shoulders. That's the tenderness which with God, that, that God deals to you. He cares for you. And then the last picture is that, in, in verse 3, is that he heals them. God is the one that heals them. It says here, but they did not know that I healed them. But in God, in fact, the matter is, Jesus has healed you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been healed from that life of sin and misery, enslavement to Satan. You've been healed from all that. Psalm 103 reminds us that God is the one that heals all of our diseases. So this tender picture of God as a gracious father is that he calls us, he teaches us, he cares for us, and he heals us. But then God seems to switch the analogy in verse 4. And now instead of being a gracious father, God turns and reveals his tenderness to us as a gracious farmer in verse 4. And notice here it says that I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. My friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, even the most difficult circumstance in which you found yourself, God has never left you. He is still leading you with bands of love and cords of kindness That's how God is leading you, with love. And then he gives us another picture. In the middle part of verse 4, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. It's a picture of a farmer. Earlier, it it tells us that uh, in chapter 10 that Ephraim was a trained heifer. A heifer was a a female cow that had not yet born born a calf. And they were a trained heifer that loves to thresh. But if you go back to chapter 10, you'll see that God is going to put the yoke upon them. Now, apparently, in ancient times, as uh, the animals would thresh, it was, uh, threshing was an easy work for the animals to do. Deuteronomy forbid, it was against the law to, to muzzle an ox while he was threshing. And so... Threshing their grain as you would bring the wheat in and you would have the animals walk over to separate the wheat, the kernels from the chaff. And the, the, the heifer or the ox could easily eat because it was illegal for them, against the law, for them to muzzle the ox. So it was an easy thing to do. But then later on in chapter 10, it talks about God putting the yoke upon them. So the easy thing... The enjoyable thing for the heifer to do, God was going to put the yoke upon them. And here it says that God is the one that eases the yoke on their jaws. You know, we put a bit and a bridle on a horse so that they will follow us. And so God now is saying he's going to loosen that bit from our mouths. God is the one that unburdens you, my friends. God is the one that unburdens you. In Psalm 55, it tells us that God is the one who daily bears our burdens. God is the one that unburdens us. I remember I shared an earlier class period that I 
had a, got a job working at as a night computer operator at a bank in Frankfort, Indiana. I remember there was one time that I was, I was a young Christian, only been a Christian about a year, maybe a year and a half. And I was uh, greatly troubled by something. Now, I can't even remember what it was, of course, but that's not the important thing. That was a long time ago when I was working as a computer operator. But what's interesting about the story is not that I can't remember it now, but what happened. I remember just being terribly burdened about something. I was all alone in the bank, and I remember 1 Peter 5, 7. says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And I remember saying, okay, God, I can't bear this burden. It's too hard for me. Would you take it? You promised that you would. And such a peace came over the little office I was sitting in. Such a confidence, such a calmness. And what was interesting about it was that a few minutes later, there was such a peace and a joy that God had brought into my life that I couldn't even remember what it was that had burned in me just a few minutes ago. I remember having to concentrate and say, what was that that burdened me? And after a while, I remembered what it was. But God had so taken it away and brought such peace. God is the one that unburdens us in Jesus. And then the next picture that we see of God acting as a gracious farmer is that he nourishes them. And I bent down to feed them. I bent down to feed them. It's, again, it's a picture of a farmer taking the, the bucket of oats or whatever and, and laying it before the goats or the, the small calves and feeding them. And God, as a gracious farmer, nourishes you. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 34, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. My friends, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Then come to Jesus. James Chalmers was probably the most uh, effective of the missionaries to the Pacific Islands. He was uh, raised in Scotland, and he kind of led as a young man, he kind of led a group of hooligans, I guess we would call them. And I heard that there was going to be a revival, some revival services at, at a church in, in, in Scotland. And he decided to get his little band of hooligans together to go and disrupt the service. Somebody challenged and said, well, before you decide to disrupt the service, why don't you find out what it's about? So he agreed to go one night. And as he was walking up the steps to the church, he heard them sing. Psalm, some, some Irish missionaries were there conducting these revivals. He heard them sing from Psalm 100. The same words, the same tune that we have in our Bibles, or in our Psalters. Old 100, the tune is called. And as he walked up the steps to that service, he said that he had never heard such solemn yet joyful singing in his life. He sat intrigued for the service, and the sermon was based on Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And it says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let one who wishes take the, take the water of life without cost. James Chalmers later, reflecting on that time in his journal, simply said, I was thirsty, 
so I came. Psalm 107 tells us that God knows how to fill the thirsty soul. God knows how to fill the thirsty soul. One of George Mueller's favorite verses leads us to the transition that we're going to make here. One of George Mueller's favorite verses was Psalm 81.10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But do you know what verse 11 says? But you were not willing. God wants to fill our souls, our lives, our mouths, if you will, with good things. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But you were not willing. So as we make this transition to verses 5 to 7, again, in the first four verses, we see the faithfulness of God's love and Five to seven, we see the fickleness of God's people. So we saw how God deals in tenderness with his people. Now we have to look at the fact that God's people deal in treachery with him. And so you see a couple of things here. Uh, You see, it's our obstinacy that causes the problem. Now, boys and girls, obstinacy is really the idea of a, a refusal to change our minds or to change our course of life despite reasonable appeals to do so. So it's really being a stubbornness, if you will. And the people here, despite this great picture of God's love as a gracious father, as a kind farmer, they're obstinate to God. Open your mouths wide, and I will fill them. But you are not willing. So notice this, that it's our obstinacy that prevents us from returning to God. It's our obstinacy that prevents us from returning to God. You've probably known people in your life, you've probably counseled them or tried to encourage them. You've known of people that are so stuck in their sin that they don't want to return to God. Probably all of us understand that. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the sin that so easily entangles us. And Galatians 6 talks about people being trapped in sin. So we all understand that. But you see, it's that hardness, that obstinacy that prevents us from returning to Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest any of you any of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. My friends, if uh, I want you to think about the idea that God, who is the one that taught you to walk, was so kind to you that he taught you to walk, do we think that God does not care about how we're walking and living now? You see, those first shuffling, stumbling steps that God was there to be kind and tender to us. Do you not think he cares how we walk now? You see, you can't come here today and just rejoice in God and then go back tomorrow and live a life of sin and misery without God knowing it. You can't get up on Tuesday morning and have your devotional time and dedicate yourself to God once again and then go ahead and live the rest of the day the way you want to. 
You see, you can't do that. So we have here the fact that it's our obstinacy that prevents us from returning to God. God cares how you're living your life today. What is the step of faith that Jesus wants you to take now? It may be a stumbling step like a little child or a shuffling step like we get to when we're a little older in life. But God cares about those steps of faith that he's calling you to take. But it's our obstinacy that prevents us from returning to Christ. Psalm 39, verse, Psalm 32, verse 9 says this, Do not be as the horse or the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, otherwise they would not come near to you. He says, don't be like that. Come to God, return to God. If you feel trapped in your sin and struggles, confess it to God. Seek out a Christian friend, a Christian counselor. Speak to one of the elders. Isaiah 44, 22, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return to God. Don't continue in your obstinacy. Return to him. Second picture that we have of our obstinacy is that our obstinacy prevents us from seeking God. You got this idea at the end of verse 6 about councils. Apparently what was going on is that uh, <clears throat> Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, Israel, was seeking counsel, seeking alignments with either Egypt or Assyria. It kind of goes back and forth. And they were seeking these counsels with them, to, hoping that these... Uh, these alliances with these former, these uh, national powers would protect them. And so the people were not seeking after God. They were living by their own counsels of Egypt and Assyria. And throughout the last part of the book of Hosea, Egypt and Assyria are mentioned in every chapter. The people were concerned about their well-being. So instead of coming to God, they went to Assyria or we're looking to Egypt for help. And then notice what happens, just verse 6. The sword will rage against their cities. They will be consumed. They will be devoured. <clears throat> Planning other things other than walking with God is something the Bible tells us not to do. In James, it talks about the people saying, let's go to such and such a city and engage in business and stay some time there and make a profit. And then... James says, you fools, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if God wills, we shall do this or that. These people were placing their confidence in Egypt or Assyria. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 145 that it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. In Psalm 118, it says that, that Israel was to not trust in men, but to trust in God. Let me just read you from Hosea chapter, or excuse me, uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 17. Thus says the Lord, cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Again, that's what we're seeing here with the people's fickleness. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And then he switches his imagery. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Again, these people were trusting in Assyria or trusting in Egypt. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when, when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. My friends, have you set the direction of your life to seek after God? See, we can trust in earthly things like security of our retirement account or the safety of our homes. But we're to trust in the Lord. And the people were relying on their own counsels. The last thing that I want to share with you, and this is a little bit difficult. The ESV doesn't bring this out. The Hebrew is a little difficult. But I think that the best way of translating this passage is that our obstinacy prevents us from exalting God. Perhaps the best way to translate the last part of verse 7, and though they call out to the Most High, there is none at all that exalts him. That's perhaps the best way of translating. It's a little, Hebrew's a little difficult. But the whole passage is these people were turning aside from God and worshiping false gods and false idols. And so it's our obstinacy. It's your obstinacy. It's my obstinacy that prevents us from exalting God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So we've looked at the idea of God's tender love, and then we've looked a little bit at the struggles that we have in our obstinacy. We want to live our own lives instead of living the lives that God has prepared for us. We want to trust our own counsels, our own alliances, our own means of finding help and support, instead of recognizing that underneath are the everlasting arms, instead of recognizing that God leads us with cords of love and bands of kindness. So let me just suggest a couple of applications for you to consider today from this passage. The first one is that, I hope it's very obvious, that we just must, we must delight in the unchanging love of God. God gives us these two pictures that we understand one of them, I hope, the other one, because probably not any of us are farmers, we may struggle with. But the, his tenderness is a gracious father and is a gracious farmer. You must learn to trust as we just sang every morning, I'll sing of his steadfast love. Did you sing about God's love this morning before you came to church? What about Thursday morning when you have to rush off to work or rush off to school and you have a busy day? Will your minds and hearts be focused upon the love of God? I have set the love of God continually before me. So trust and delight in the steadfast love of God. Another thing that we need to recognize is that we... We need to have humility when it comes to our life in Christ. It's something that God calls us to. He's the one that calls us. He's the one that gives new life. He, he comes down and in his kindness brings new life to people that were spiritually dead. And we need to rejoice in that. Spurgeon was the first person that I know of that talked about the idea that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the gospel and recognize the mighty work of God in raising you to new life. And then a third thing I just mentioned for your application is that you need to take seriously 
restoration and repentance. You may be like these people in verses 5 to 7. Obstinacy, stubbornness, recognize that Jesus is the one that wants to give you new life, that wants to give you that abundant and free life that he promised in Scripture. Don't flee from that. Don't put your heels down and say, I'm not going to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He himself said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. This heavenly Father that calls you, that teaches you how to walk, that heals you and cares for you, that unburdens you and that leads you, is calling for you to come to him. Will you come? James Chalmers simply said, I was thirsty, so I came. Are you willing to come to Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you for your steadfast love. We recognize that your love reaches to the heavens. We cannot fully comprehend it, but you've given us pictures of your love as a gracious father and as a gracious farmer. And Father, you... Your word tells us in Ezekiel that we are to create for ourselves a clean heart. We thank you that a clean heart is a gift from you, but you call us to work at that. So God, I pray that we might, that you might bestow on each of us the blessing of a clean heart and give us the disciplines to learn how to come to you and seek you and delight in your great love. May your blessing rest upon us for this day, for this week, as we seek you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.